You're listening to Living Cities Forum podcast. This podcast comes as part of our 2022 forum, where we discuss material flows, a theme that examines the global material flows that underwrite our growing built environments. For more, visit livingcitiesforum.org or subscribe to the Amphibian podcast. Good afternoon, everyone. It's wonderful to be here with you guys today and to continue this really engaging discussion, which is such a pleasure um, to be part of. Um, I don't have a title for my presentation today, and I decided instead to use this image. And it's an image of an architectural installation that I did a few months ago called The Door of Return. And it is in reference to this sort of historic threshold that is very common in um, the transatlantic slave trade forts that line and dot the West African coastline. And it's sort of an invitation and the motivation behind it is to really think about materially, culturally, and psychologically what it means to return um, today. Um, in material terms, return has a lot to do with biocompatibility and thinking about materials transformations um, as part of how do we restore health to an ecosystem. And in cultural and psychological terms, it's sort of turning away from this sort of fixation that we've been talking about all day with sort of looking ahead um, to growth, which is so commonly uh, associated with extraction, and instead looking around us um, and within. So, um, I kind of want to talk about three material flows between the building, the land, and our plate. And looking at them as sites for reinvention, as well as for investigating new roles of the architect, the designer, to engage productively with this sort of network of stakeholders that are trying to address circularity um, in our inherited capitalistic um, system. If we were to sort of abstract um, how material value is sort of created and transformed today. This is something that we could use to describe probably the major forms of um, economy um, and political organization in terms of capitalism and socialism over the last um, couple of centuries. And what they both have in common is this sort of top-down um, extraction of value from the land, um, incredibly impatiently, um, and using labor forms um, to generate that value. The value transformation in this system largely relies on this sort of centralized industrial processing, and value is sort of hoarded by an ownership structure that Uncle Dan talked about that makes the externalities, the true costs and impacts in our ecology invisible to those of us on the other side of this um, system. And value sort of piles up exponentially in sites where they are essentially unable to return back to their generation um, sites. Nor can they actually reinvent themselves to participate in any other part of this cycle. We can think about this in a number of different ways. Um, and we can identify a number of different forms of alienated value along this value chain. Um, one can think about it in terms of monoculture farming. This is actually the site of a, a previous coconut farm where I used to actually get coconut husks to develop building materials. 
um, that is now replaced by rubber plantations, which are incredibly difficult to plant anything after the rubber tree has reached the end of its life cycle because its rhizosphere is incredibly destructive. Um, one can think about it in terms of labor, um, and these are farmers who do not get fair wages for the amount of work that they contribute into these systems, or they don't even have the advocacy um, to basically determine the health in their context of production. At the very end of that, we can think about it also in terms of alienated value at the end of our material life cycles in the form of pollution. Um, materials that have accumulated in large quantities, essentially they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. All of these sort of constitute alienated value flows and um, the act of sort of designing, constructing, and attaining the building material life cycle remains to me one of the most powerful vortices for unalienating material flows. Um, and I've been very interested in understanding these sort of new strategic positions that architects can sort of play in positioning themselves in the direct line of material flows that do not exist or are not connected through intersectorial alliances, through industrial academic partnerships, to forms of capacity building in communities um, that participate in a really effective way to unclog some of these material bottlenecks. Uh, we have for so long sort of seen the role of the architect sort of occupying that, occupying that position between consumers and owners and driving that extraction cycle. So the first flow, the flow of materials from the land to the building is sort of embodied in sort of a decade-long research project that is surrounded uh, or focused on the coconut husk. And it's sort of a flagship. Um, it's not sort of this miracle material, but it's a flagship material to really think about the potential um, of agricultural waste to serve as a new material feedstock for our buildings. The scale that Indy you know, challenged us to address this morning um, is evident when you think about the, the amount of material that comes out of agriculture and the fact that our growth is so intricately tied to the production of these materials. Last year's estimates was that we produced 9.4 billion tons of material from agriculture. And we know that a large percentage, as much as 40%, actually is wasted. Often they are prematurely combusted um, right on the field because we need to clear space um, for new cycles of agriculture. And when you think about where in the world this, this population growth is going to occur, context in the global south, particularly Africa, that is basically 75% of all population growth is going to happen on that continent, they have for a really long time been the sort of focus of exporting low-value agricultural commodities, and the waste is right in their hands. When we blow open sort of, you know, the diversity of materials in our agricultural waste streams around the world today, there's sort of a dominance of the big four agricultural wastes from sugarcane, corn, wheat, and straw. I believe straw is the largest agricultural waste here in Australia. Um, and these four cereals basically um, represent 50% of all the agricultural waste on our planet. And there's something worrying also about relying on looking at these four feedstocks as 
uh, supplying the demand for bio-based building materials because we might accelerate and exacerbate this sort of monoculture because we want their byproducts. And so a lot of the work is thinking about how might we look at multi-cropping systems um, and growing sister crops, as we see in a lot of indigenous cultures, to inform the types of seasonal materials we might use in our buildings. One of the lowest hanging fruits in terms of materials on this chart is actually the coconut. And the coconut has, relative to all the other materials here, a really high percentage of lignin, which is a structural stuff, and a really low percentage of cellulose, the stuff that other organisms like. And for that reason, it posed a number of really interesting transformation pathways into the building material life cycle. Coconut can be known as a superfood. Um, in the last couple of decades, there's been a sort of boom around coconut water, coconut cosmetic products, and it's sort of a, a misleading phenomenon, which has nothing to do with the nutrition in the actual food itself, and has more to do with sort of promoting this idea that there's an economic boom about to take place, when really it's a signal of an agricultural, a cyclical agricultural crisis that is happening, or has been happening for some time. The underbelly of such superfood economies around the world are um, incredibly troubling. And along the tropical belt between 26 degrees north and south of the equator, there are coconut-producing territories where we see the generation of one of the strongest skins of plants on the planet, which is the coconut husk. And in places like Ghana, where I'm from, it's illegal to actually dump the husk into the waste municipal systems because of the fact that they're so heavy and difficult to compress in landfills. Um, and when you really look, um, there was a wonderful question about respect. Um, and I think in this work, uh, respect has a lot to do with understanding what went into the growth and development of this material. Often in the first life of you know, these materials, if you think about what a coconut husk has to do on a beach every day, day in, day out for months, um, it's got to deal with high solar radiation, saline conditions, wind, um, all in sort of soil conditions that are really quite challenging. And it produces the toughest skin of all. And that material, if processed right, that performance shows up in subsequent lives, especially in the building. And when you decompose the husk itself, you get this wonderful tensile fiber, um, coconut fiber, and what we discovered, a majority of the husk was made out of this dust-like substance called the pith, which is typically used in hydroponic soil substitute applications. But when it's actually um, uh, heat and pressure is applied to it, and this is sort of half the sort of processing conditions that you see when you're making plywood, it actually melts into a really uniform and robust glue. So essentially you eliminate the need for its synthetic glue. So working with you know, the knowledge of these constituents in the husk, um, I was very interested in, in thinking about how the architect could situate themselves between where these materials are produced, whether it's right on the farm or in urban areas like Accra, um, the capital of Ghana, and working with people, typically coconut traders, that are probably criminals in the sense that they're burning the husks um, at night to avoid, you know, the penalties of dumping them in the waste systems. And so 
this was an opportunity to take a stakeholder that is alienated and make them a vital um, form of green-skilled labor in terms of ensuring the really good quality of the husk to produce building materials. And often, you know, in most of the enterprises that we work with, you, you're working with outliers to really powerful agricultural um, enter enterprises. And they do not have necessarily the resources um, and time to develop the type of research um, that is needed to sort of process these materials to modern standards. And this idea of the academic industrial alliance is key. Um, since 2007, um, at CASE, based in New York, uh, we've been working with a number of um, coconut uh, waste collection companies in Ghana, as well as these emerging bioadhesive companies in upstate New York, and evaluating a range of transformation pathways for these materials. Um, in looking at these different glues, one of which is the coconut pith that I just showed, um, there's a wonderful natural glue made out of the a vegetative state of fungi, fungal mycelium, as well as other types of, of uh, protein-based uh, waste like soy that comes out of the food industry. All of these are candidates for binders for these coconut husk derivatives. And there's a whole range of applications from insulation, which we need, particularly in terms of retrofit um, of buildings in the global north, um, medium to high-density products, one of the strongest products we, we used, it's although not plotted on this chart because I've never been able to replicate it again, um, was the use of Ghanaian coconuts um, to produce wood that was as strong as oak. Um, and the really interesting thing is um, because these materials are so place-based, the health of your soil as well as the climate that tempers the fruit throughout its life can produce some of the most amazing materials. And so there are a range, uh, sort of a, an entire uh, range of possibilities that these materials can move towards. Um, and there's a trade-off, whether we make them stronger so they're more durable um, as high-density boards for external facade systems, for interior partitioning, all the way down to materials that are incredibly breathable, incredibly porous, which play a huge role in sort of um, absorbing moisture in the building, as well as a wide range of, of um, indoor air pollutants. Um, coconut activated carbon is the world's most efficient act activated carbon. Almost most things that we manufacture somehow passes through activated carbon because it can capture impurities um, from our sewage systems to some of the materials that we make. One of the things that we were trying to do was to understand um, what is a way of designing or developing a sort of DNA for these materials that is quite flexible. The first coconut panels that we made were incredibly heavy, because <laughs> coconut husks are incredibly heavy. Um, and one of the things we tried to do, particularly because it's, they're quite expensive and robust materials, was to think of how we might substitute the core of these panels with more readily available, cheaper, more abundant uh, materials. And so what you kind of see here is what, what my friend's daughter called Kit Kat. Take a break. Um, where you have sort of an exterior and interior sort of um, lining made out of the coconut um, uh, fibers 
that is impregnated with soy, and the interior, which is sort of corn-fed mycelium. And that's pressed in sort of uh, the, the mold that you can kind of see over there into the sort of modular, self-supporting panel system. And this was a result of a collaboration between emerging bioadhesive companies and this coconut waste collection company in Ghana. Um, and the form of this um, panel was in response to what sort of application could one enter to give these companies a fighting chance to survive. If you were to press the coconut panel into basically a flat panel, you're competing with plywood and medium density fiberboard. And no matter what you do, because this is waste, which means it's low quality to begin with, and it's everywhere, it's distributed, those two things mean no matter what, it's gonna be more expensive to make uh, relative to things like plywood. And so aiming for high value applications is always sort of the leg in, the thing that gets you in the door with a lot of biocomposite companies. And so part of it was an acoustic application. You can multiply the actual cost per square meter of these products by five to six times um, in terms of acoustic performance. Or you could develop them into integrated HVAC systems where you can actually pump um, filtration material in this sort of uh, module to filter air. And so this sort of role of the architect can sort of um, be described in, in three different ways. I think this idea of identifying value and generating value in this sort of system that I've described is key. Because um, that enables a range of profits, whether, whatever form that comes in, to be distributed to stakeholders who are now playing a bigger role in this ecosystem. There's this idea of value translation, which I think there's a ton of work that needs to be done um, to get the right stakeholders involved to make this type of bioeconomy possible. And that goes to understanding the value that everyone brings to the table. Um, farmers, for example, that we work with don't have tertiary degrees or the kind of cultural capital that you get from going to university or having a professional affiliation. But they have so much embedded cultural capital within their farming communities that ensure their soil remains productive over a long time. Um, ways of transporting and distributing these materials at really effective costs. And how do you value that? Um, coconut traders that become essentially the middleman for collecting and pre-processing the coconut husk, all of these need to be seen and translated into terms um, that are economically rewarding in order to circulate that value. And this idea of this value circulation is so key relative to the sort of hoarding of value that we see in our sort of ownership and production economy. The second project is really looking at the flow of material from our farms and our plates into the building. And to do that, um, probably the most undervalued organism on the planet is fungi. Um, and we think of the fact that fungi have basically ushered plant and human life onto land, you know, sort of millions of years ago and they're probably the world's smartest chemists. They're able to access and break down really intricate architectures of things like the ones we see in, in coconut husks and other types of natural fibers. 
They're able to sequester chemicals that we can never replicate in the lab. And so working with them as collaborators to sort of decompose um, or transform some of these agricultural waste into building materials has huge potential. A lot of the, the value that you sort of see in people who are using myco-based products has a lot to do with biodegradability. But my interest in them has primarily been to using this technology as a way of prototyping how we might give complete access to anyone to actually sort of do this thing you know, in their homes, in schools, in other parts of the city that are underutilized. This specific strain, and I should mention this is one strain of about five million strains of fungi, um, has sort of been improved over time to sort of digest things like hemp, um, things that have a lot of cellulose over the course of five days and really resist certain types of infections that can happen in our everyday environments. And so working with urban food enterprises and farming communities has been a really interesting way of thinking about how to collect these waste materials from our kitchens or from our farms in the city and processing them uh, right where they're found. Um, this exhibition was done at the Royal Institute of British Architects in Liverpool and it was a way of designing really simple grow kits, things made out of um, plastic that is incredibly easy for a human, a child to hold, um, ways of introducing um, the type of assembly, disassembly logics that one would need to sort of remove these materials very easily from buildings. So you can sort of see a plank of wood which creates a lip and screws for, for bringing these materials into a wall assembly. Um, and things like um, additional nutrition which sort of activates their growth in the form of flour from your kitchen cabinet. Um, all of these can happen with the kind of materials and resources one has at home. So over the course of two weeks, we worked with about 200 people um, from middle school all the way to university students, University of Liverpool, and Windsor Street Urban Farmers, um, which cut across a wide range of ages. Um, and in the gallery at Reba, we grew all of these um, materials on site in repurposed asbestos chambers, which are very good at ensuring air quality and sterile conditions on the inside because that's what asbestos rem removal involves. Um, and right in the gallery we installed at the outside, right at the entrance, from in plan you can kind of see the sort of tunnel um, that creates a sort of entrance to the exhibition. The, there's a wonderful research institute in um, France called Atelier Luma, and it sits within a very rich bioregion um, on the continent. About close to 40% of all organic produced in France is grown in the Camargue region. And it was a wonderful opportunity to really expand um, the type of inventory of materials that can be processed with mycelium. So everything from food, urban food enterprises, from farms, they have a rich history of producing olive oil, rosemary, lavender, um, so very rich inventory of agricultural waste. 
as well as a range of invasive species. Uh, a lot of um, them are sort of removed and there is sort of no sort of um, transformation pathway for them into the building. And mycelium is very effective at doing that. So this really enabled us to look at a much larger catalog of, of waste, agricultural, food, and invasive species, materials, and really think about what it means to boil all of these materials down to their common denominator, which is sugar, cellulose, and lignin, the muscle and plants. Um, in order to understand, you know, seasonality in, in a more um, nuanced way, so if there's an opportunity to use um, a material that's coming in abundance, um, but that does not have the right nutritional profile, it's not a healthy meal for the fungi, how might you substitute, mix and match with other types of, of material? So you would pair coconut that has a ton of lignin with something like canola or hemp. Um, and understanding their mechanical performance as well to look at the range of applications that one could use in the building material life cycle. Um, and we decided to integrate the outputs of this research into a sort of community kitchen, um, which was sort of just five minutes away from the foundation, and experiment with new types of wall systems that could accept a hierarchy of mycocomposites. One of the biggest challenges in working with materials is everyone wants to know right up front whether they meet every standard from how do they perform with fire to when you cut them, what is the particle size of the dust, and does that, um, is that a risk to human health? And so you can kind of see the base of the wall are made out of mycocomposites that use hemp, and that's been a material that has been very well characterized in terms of mechanical, fire, um, moisture performance. And the more experimental, everyday um, waste that is coming out of the kitchen, which forms sort of those insets, um, everything from lemon peel, citric-based food waste, to onion peels, to garlic peels, that can be fed um, to develop um, sort of experimental microcomposites. And this is something that is so important because <laughs> if you can imagine we're working with one mycelium strain um, that has a preference for certain types of agricultural waste, and there are five million strains and an infinite number of combination of agricultural stock, we have not even begun to understand the capacity of the materials we can produce. Um, one of the most amazing things about um, what we learned at the local um, university there were there was a strain of mycelium that eats sp very specific, a very fussy fu uh, fungi that eats the skin of beet and produces vanilla, um, which may not sound like a big deal, but one of the biggest hurdles is actually getting these materials into wide applications like car insulation. BMW almost replaced all of its car insulation with mycelium and didn't because of the smell. They don't smell bad, but they don't smell like the new car smell, which is like VOCs. We love it. And um, this idea of being able to generate new types of aromatic compounds uh, has a lot of potential. We know there's mycelium that digests different types of plastics. Um, there's a mycelium that we've worked with that only eats seaweed and it fluoresces throughout 24 hours and it's done growing. 
So there really is quite a lot to do and discover in this field of microcomposites. Um, there are also ways that we can intervene in terms of that five-day growth by bringing them together so that growth happens just on the surface. And you can think about the possibilities of that for growing walls where you don't need mortar or other types of elements like nails and screws to fasten them together. And I just kind of wanted to shed light on sort of three models of business production that I've had the privilege of, of sort of engaging with in the micro world. Um, Equivative um, was a company that came out of my university, RPI, where I did my, my studies. And they were the first, and they still remain the world's largest commercial producer of micro composite materials for building and packaging. And they've sort of licensed to other companies around the world to really cut down the carbon footprint of shipping um, these inoculated agricultural waste to building sites. So one way is obviously to work directly with them and get the substrates that are inoculated with their proprietary mycelium strain. And we did this in our studio at the School of Architecture at RPI um, with a colleague, Gustavo Kremble, to grow domes and, and large-scale structures right outside of our building. Um, another is um, in, in the Netherlands for a, a biennial called the Sonsbeek Biennial, we decided to actually grow all the materials in Amsterdam, which was just an hour away. And there's a company, and there are many companies like this now, that actually situate themselves in food companies. Um, CNC, as you can see there, is the largest mushroom food company um, in the Netherlands. And building materials companies now sit there and take advantage of all of the infrastructure in terms of refrigeration and, and sterilizing these materials, growing them safely to get a high-quality product. And, and sort of they, they grow all of your materials in there, and that's what they did for us. Um, and that's sort of the dome, the flip dome. It was just basically a bowl um, installed at Sonsbeek. And the last model is something that really addresses and allows architects and designers to participate without having to own all of the infrastructure for producing. Um, a company like Magical Mushrooms, they now have three um, factories in, in England and one that just came online in Turkey. And so as an architect, you can make your mold. Um, typically, you can mold it out of some wood or high-density foam and then you sort of vacuum form it with a high-density plastic to make this grow tray. Um, and I don't think plastic is bad here because after you use them, after a couple of different um, iterations, you can melt it down and it can be used again for another designer's grow tray. Um, and they basically, you send your digital file, they mill, they form the grow trays, and they sit stacked in a very small shelf for whenever you have a client that wants those trays for an application in their building. And this idea of, of really making use of these really expensive infrastructures, if you were to take this on as, a, as an architect, that being concentrated through enterprises like this is, is really important. Um, they can integrate a number of different things. Here we just have waste plywood that is put at the back of the panel so you can easily fasten them into walls. Um, one of the most interesting things about being in mushroom um, factories is the stark difference in noise and air quality within the factory. It's incredibly quiet. Um, 
and smells great relative to a lot of the plywood factories I've been in. And that's sort of a, a panel they grew for an exhibition as well in, in Belgium. And I'm gonna end on a, a much lighter note um, because I took the year off coming up to the end of this year to work with a chef. Um, and it really was an opportunity to look at food as a, as a way of really changing people's taste and desire, um, tempering their desire for, for experiencing materials, whether that's something you ingest or you surround yourself with um, in a more aspirational way rather than a punitive way, which is what we see a lot in the waste um, collection sector. Um, much of what was happening on the plate, as well as in the built environment in Ghana, were, was uh, really similar. If you think about the fact that 80% of all building materials in Ghana are imported, and that's largely cement, um, which has, re has basically substituted everything from earth construction to lightweight um, frames made of bamboo and earth and the roof, which is completely dominated now by metal roofs, both in rural and urban areas alike. And that's not so dissimilar from the sort of substitution of local ingredients on uh, the plate. This is one of our traditional dishes called jello rice. And everything from the tomato sauce that is baked, uh, sort of boiled with the rice, to the chicken um, is imported. Uh, the only thing that's probably local are the onions on that plate. And looking at the parallels in the material economy um, was something that I, I worked on with Selassie Tadaka, who's one of Africa's uh, most important chefs. She's been championing the reintroduction of ancient African grains, as well as a, a range of luxury chocolate products that really introduce African spices back into our palates. Not only have we lost we can't even identify what these plants look like. We don't even have a taste for them anymore because we've conditioned ourselves to like things like white rice, which is stripped of all flavor. So we, the stew takes on all, uh, another role. Um, and so we designed two things. One was a menu, which was a pleasure to design. Um, we traveled for the last year visiting different farms around the country. And the first thing on the menu um, is actually a drink and it's water but it's water that has been infused with activated carbon from coconut and rice. So typically, if you travel from afar and you come to someone's house, the first thing that you're given is water. Um, and this biomass is basically burnt in a ceramic pot, so this, the activated carbon lines the interior of the ceramic pot, and water is then poured to absorb all of that activated carbon, which essentially cleans your system as you drink it. And you develop a really keen taste um, for materials. You tip, re, you're, you're ingesting it. Um, and you can taste the health of an ecosystem through the water. I don't have time to go through the entire menu, um, but there's a sort of a seven-course meal, um, each of which tells a, a really deep story around some of the things that we learned. I'm only going to talk about two. Um, the first is this dish. Um, that's made out of a coconut base, and the coconut base is a, a milk, essentially, that completely transforms um, the taste and the experience of these very, very different ingredients. Um, it balances out the sourness and the sweetness, 
um, and allows you to digest the, the meal in a very um, harmonious way. And for us, it, this was key in terms of thinking about value transformation in materials. If you understand what's in the material, you can completely generate a new experience around it. Um, it also refers to the type of multi-cropping that you see in coconut farms. Uh, earlier we were talking about trees, and coconut trees are one of the most generous trees on the planet. They grow very tall and skinny, and they're far apart um, that they allow sun to come down to a range of crops um, that can grow on the forest bed. Um, and this allows a range of different farming um, uh, profits and, and economies to happen simultaneously alongside the coconut. And we ended the meal with a dessert. Um, this was taking a street food called Kofi Brokman. So if you're broke and you want a nutritious meal, um, there's this sort of roasted plantain on the roadside and groundnuts, which has all the protein and micronutrients, and it's a complete meal in itself. And there's sort of a, um, a negative perception of eating this food because it's so cheap. Um, and in the building sector, one could say that's analogous to building with earth. It's the poor man's building block. Um, and reinventing this meal to take into account um, all of the spices that bring, elevate um, the plantain and groundnuts, um, as well as tiger nut milk infused coconut activated carbon. Um, and that was poured over you know, the plantain and groundnuts um, to really bring it into a luxurious dessert experience. And this idea of making the, the journey to that final combustion phase, the activated carbon, um, as a form of respecting, you know, all of the work that went into developing the material was a goal of, of bringing it in, in at the end. Um, the stars of the dinner were actually plants. Um, one of the things that we were trying to address was the extreme loss of biodiversity that we're seeing uh, in the country. And we could not find a single commercial enterprise that was growing indigenous African rice at scale except one, um, which is really tragic because if you think about our rice on the planet, there are two major forms, and that's African and Asian rice. Um, and Asian rice has completely dominated Africa's um, plate. Um, so we ended up sourcing 126 species of rice, African rice, from Svalberg, um, where we have the sort of world's crop trust in a seed bank. Um, and we grew sort of two cycles of each of these unique um, species of rice. And we ate with them. Um, they lined the entire communal dining table that were made out of market trays in order to bring back the familiarity around identifying these plants, understanding when they're ready to be harvested as a form of you know, re reintroducing and educating on our local biodiversity. Those plants, uh, those rice plants we're planning to scale up and this sort of intermediate um, output from our collaboration is a sort of public garden in Accra's only green space um, it's a children's park that is no longer used. Um, and it's very difficult to do anything in there. Um, but we were allowed to because we asked them, 
where they had any issues in the park. And this corner of the park actually was a flood site. So that image that um, Vo showed of Vietnam is very much similar to what's happening in, in Accra, where there is literally no green space. And as a result, all of these hard surfaces that are very difficult to drain water are all being concentrated into a sort of drainage system that runs through the park. And this area is just a low-lying area gets flooded every year. So what we did was design a sort of bioswale, um, allowing much more porosity for water to be patiently stored and drained over time from this, this site. And we used a range of agricultural wastes and stones, as well as integrate these rice, which are incredibly flood tolerant, to grow over the course of three to four months um, every year. So this is our second cycle that just began two weeks ago. Um, for us, it's incredibly important um, to scale up this production. Um, so these seeds are actually going to be studied for uh, a range of understanding how they deal with diseases. Um, what do we characterize in terms of nutrition in them, which tastes good, um, so that we can give this just that large cooperative that we were, we were I was just telling you about um, in the Volta region in Ghana to grow and bring back into our food bowl. So I'll end there on that note on rice and look forward to the discussion. Thank you. You're listening to Living Cities Forum podcast. This podcast comes as part of our 2022 forum, where we discuss material flows, a theme that examines the global material flows that underwrite our growing built environments. For more, visit livingcitiesforum.org or subscribe to the Amphibian podcast.